Hey there, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. We don't talk much about cybersecurity on the podcast or at the conference either, uh, but it's clearly something we need to be paying more attention to. So I spoke with Mike Kachevsky. He is the CEO of a company called MedCrypt that raised uh, nearly $2 million recently from investors to uh, expand on a business in which they're providing uh, protections for medical device manufacturers. This area is not my my area of expertise, obviously, but uh, I thought the company brought an interesting approach to giving some security to medical device companies. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike. He he obviously knows his stuff. Uh, He's able to explain it well. We talked a bit about, uh, well, a lot of things. We talked about the Abbott recall. We talked about the FDA's uh, pushing for cybersecurity and protection of infrastructure. So uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but I think it's an important perspective, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, Mike Kajeski, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, uh, to be here. It's a, it's an important topic. One we, we hear a lot about, typically folks in the podcast are, are the executives and the investors in medical device companies. And I think one of those issues that maybe is on the third or fourth page of a PowerPoint is talking about uh, security of devices, especially as they become more connected. But we haven't really explored that topic here on the podcast. So I'm, I'm sort of hoping we can do that today. And in fact, I'm sure we can do that today. Um, but first... I, I do want to find out a little bit more about yourself. How did you uh, become co-founder and CEO of MedCrypt? Yeah, so so first, let me say that it's it's funny to hear you say that cybersecurity, specifically of medical devices, is something that's on the third or fourth page of a PowerPoint presentation. Because when my founder uh, co-founders and I started the company, uh, really started looking at the problem in late 2014. Pretty much everybody I knew in the industry said cybersecurity in medical devices is not a thing. Like nobody cares who would ever hack a device. It doesn't have a credit card number on it. So who cares? Um, so the, the industry ha- has definitely come a long way in the uh, you know three and a half or four years that that you know I've been looking at the space. So that that's good to see. Um, so so my my personal background is in uh, medical physics, which is the the technology behind radiation oncology and diagnostic imaging. I started a, a software company while in graduate school. Um, that was focused on some relatively obscure workflow issues that medical physicists face, uh, you know, working in a clinical setting in, in a radiation oncology department. And that company was acquired by Varian Medical Systems in 2013. So I started working uh, at Varian as a product manager on a, a clinical informatics uh, product. Uh, and, you know, through my my role there in, in talking to different, you know, hospital executives and and clinical users, found that a couple of important people were asking questions about the cybersecurity posture of devices, but asking these questions less from a perspective of data privacy. So it wasn't, you know, these weren't HIPAA compliance concerns. Mm-hmm. They were asking questions from a patient safety perspective. And at the time, I, I had never thought about, um, you know, the possibility of a, a patient being harmed when a medical device, you know, w- would be hacked. I had only thought about somebody stealing a social security number or a credit card number or something like that. So I started looking into the problem uh, in in 2014 and decided that there was enough of an opportunity and a problem that needed to be solved that we formally started the company in uh, in 2016. So to to that point, I mean, to my my first mention of of the placement of this uh, issue in the PowerPoints, I mean, it's 
it is it is something that's talked about. It's something that we as as conference creators, I think, will start exploring more uh, that and other digital issues surrounding medtech. But give me an assessment of, of the problem itself. There seems to be a lot of this could happen, this could happen, this might happen, that might happen. What is the the state of um, cybersecurity risk today for medical devices, in your opinion? Yeah. So so I think the 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 current state of the cybersecurity risk associated with medical devices is this strange combination of being overstated, but also in some ways at the same time being understated. Um, by that, I mean, I've seen a lot of articles uh, in, you know, in very reputable pu- publications over the last year or so talking about how dire the, the situation, uh, in, you know, with cybersecurity in hospitals and specifically medical devices is and how, you know, patients' lives are at risk and it's a really big concern. And all, all of that is, is true, but I think the probability of any one patient actually being physically harmed by, you know, a, a hack in a medical device is, is extremely low. Mm-hmm. And, and and therefore some of some of the I've heard some medical device uh, uh, vendors describe those sorts of articles as being alarmist, and I think that's that's probably accurate in in some cases. Um, that said, I, I think the probability of somebody somebody being harmed is low, not because it's difficult to do, but because you you really need somebody who's uh, willing to you know, harm a person, a person presumably for some sort of, you know, political or financial gain in order for, for, for that bad thing to happen mm-hmm. uh, with it, with a couple of key exceptions. So I think the probability is really low, but I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, is it okay for medical devices to have these vulnerabilities, even if we think the probability of someone exploiting them is low? And I, I think the answer to that is, is no, right? Because, um, if somebody were to be harmed, it would, it, and it turned out that the root cause was a failure of either a, a medical device vendor to implement common cybersecurity technologies, or it was, you know, a hospital being lax in their, their network security, that that's very problematic for, for a lot of reasons. So I think our industry has a lot of progress to make on the technology itself and making these devices harder to hack. But I think that the probability of my grandmother, who has an Abbott pacemaker or St. Jude pacemaker in her chest, uh, ha- you know, being personally impacted by the vulnerability there is, is extremely low. Sure. I mean, and that's true. I mean, it only takes one adverse event, event to lead to all kinds of concern and possibly a recall or something. And it doesn't even have to involve a hacking. It could just be a, a, a faulty uh, element of, of the device. So it, you're right. It just takes one or two examples for for a device company to uh, to be exposed, so what is uh well what is the fix? What what's the the uh, fix that Medcri- Medcrypt has come up with? And uh, in explaining that, where do you sort of involve yourself in the uh, in the process of of medical device development? Yeah, so so I, I sort of see the the spectrum of how a medical device vendor would go from zero to a fully baked cybersecurity program as having four main phases. The first phase being just coming to realize that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And that actually requires more more effort in some cases than we would like to admit. Um, The second phase is really process-oriented. 
things like device vendors going through their existing product portfolio to look for very obvious cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And a lot of times those are just related to failing to patch known vulnerabilities and things like Microsoft Windows or other pieces of software that they use. Phase three is really where our product starts to shine. Phase three is about medical device vendors implementing features into these devices that make them much harder to hack in the future and much easier to maintain from a cybersecurity perspective going forward. And then the the fourth phase is long-term management of the cybersecurity posture, both from a uh, a feature design perspective and a, you know, maintaining the software and providing software updates in these devices. So what we saw, uh, you know, very candidly when we started looking at this problem in 2015 and we officially formed the company in 2016 is that very few medical device vendors, maybe three, maybe only three that we, that we talked to had even gotten to phase one. We had a lot of device vendors tell us just this, this isn't a problem. Nobody's ever going to hack a device or, our device is on the hospital network, and the hospital network is secure, so we don't need to worry about this. Fortunately, the FDA has put out regulations since then, which has, uh, which, which have made it clear to device vendors that these devices need to have features built in that prevent these sorts of vulnerabilities for for a variety of reasons. So now, what we see is most device vendors we talk to will say, "Yep, we see that this is a problem, and we've we've hired somebody or promoted somebody to be." in a, you know, director of product security position or something like that. And we've started the process of securing our devices. And usually that is around inventory, uh, vulnerability inventorying and figuring out what, what problems their existing products have. And we're really starting to see sort of that leading, let's say 20% of medical device vendors in phase three, where they're starting to implement these features into their devices themselves. And it's, uh, we, we've had this hypothesis for a long time that device vendors, will eventually see see the value of cybersecurity not just as a regulatory compliance thing but as a business enabler and will start marketing their cybersecurity posture in a way that they think will help them either sell more products or engender more goodwill with their their customers we've already started to see that with some uh companies like like welch allen had a a giant banner at hims this year talking about how they're using a a specific uh, user authentication scheme that will make their devices more secure We've seen some articles written about Medtronic's pacemaker security innovations and what they're working on there. Um, and Johnson & Johnson had a blog post on the front page of their corporate website talking about how they responded to a specific vulnerability. So it's, it's in some ways very vindicating to see that the market is moving where we thought it would, which makes us think that our core underlying hypotheses have a better chance of being right than maybe we, we you know, thought two years ago. But there, there's definitely still, a, you know, a lot of work to be done and a lot of things that we need to prove out. So, so your, your question was, you know, how do, how do we get involved? How does our software work? So essentially, we have, let's call it 10 lines of code that a medical device vendor will implement into the source code of their medical device firmware or software, depending upon the type of device. And these 10 lines of code give their engineers access to uh, cryptography functions that allow them to secure what the device, uh, what's most important about that, de- that device. And by using just those 10 lines of code, we are able to give those device vendors access to security features that may have taken them literally years, man years for sure, uh, to, to implement on their own just with you know a couple lines of code. And that there are good analogies for what we are doing in other verticals um, for, for your listeners that are software savvy. There's a company called Stripe that makes it really easy for um, e-commerce developers to accept credit card payments. 
and we've really looked at the model of how they how they uh, make those uh, payment features available to their customers as a model for what we should be doing on the security side with devices. So the, those 10 lines of code go into a medical device. We're securing the data that's stored on the device, the instructions that travel back and forth between the various endpoints of the device. And then once a device is out in the field, uh, functioning securely running MedCrypt, we also monitor what those devices are doing and look look at uh, patterns of, of behavior on those devices to spot when something bad might happen with the device. And there are, there are a bunch of different ways to do that last one. The, the most common is to put a piece of software or hardware on a hospital network that will uh, monitor the traffic on the hospital network and look for bad behavior. The way that we've designed our monitoring system, the devices we secure communicate directly with us and give us metadata about what they are doing, which allows us, we believe, to, to spot bad behavior uh, in, a more, in a more detailed fashion and, and, and ideally a lot faster. So your solution is, is uh, a services model? You're, you're putting something in that essentially gives you the ability to, to look for problems, to detect any, uh, any kind of breakdowns? Exactly. So that, that's actually, it's, it's a really good, good point that you bring up. Um, a lot of medical device vendors we talk to are used to sort of the traditional enterprise software license where they buy a license to, you know, Windows 7 for X number, you know, a thousand machines. And then they own that license forever going forward. And, and maybe there's a maintenance fee to provide software updates going forward, but largely, you know, the vendor owns that software. Well, in, in a security model, there, there really are two things you need to be concerned about when, when securing a piece of software. Number one is making sure that you're building it initially in a secure fashion. But number two, making sure that when vulnerabilities are found in your product or in a piece of software your product relies on, you are providing software updates to address those vulnerabilities. So we think the software as a service model where there's a subscription component works really well for that because we are, we are incented to provide timely uh, software patches to our customers, which is incredibly important from a cybersecurity perspective. But also the fact that we're monitoring what these devices are doing going forward, uh, number one, allows a medical device vendor to comply with the the F, the, you know, the new FDA cybersecurity guidelines that came out in 2016, um, and allow us to do it in a way that we can uh, we can invest heavily in R and D around that you know event monitoring without it needing to uh, distract us from you know the, the the core security software that we're writing. What sort of um... What does a device need to contain to require or to be eligible for your kind of assistance? What what kind of devices are being put out today that would need the protection, in your opinion, need the protection that you're offering? Yeah, so, so at the highest level, any medical device that's running any sort of computer processor is eligible for, you know, our software or some other, you know, security by design features in there. But there are some very obvious candidates where it makes a lot of sense, right? So the, the most obvious candidate is a medical device that is running a high-level operating system like Windows or Linux that operates at a hospital that sends data between one or more endpoints. So sort of a traditional capital equipment device, a CT scanner that has maybe a control console, the imaging system itself, and then some image reconstruction server. You've got three or four endpoints that make up the CT scanner device. They're all running, you know, let's say Windows Server. That's a very... Uh, that that architecture is very ripe for cybersecurity problems, uh, j just due to the the the, you know, the fact that it's running on Windows, a common operating system on a hospital network that, by its very nature, has to have some sort of network communications. So our software is an obvious fit for something like that. But 
we've written our code in a way that will allow it to work not just on a big capital equipment device like a CT scanner, but also on a tiny embedded system like a pacemaker or an insulin pump. In fact, we have a, a product that we're that we're working on uh, that has the three different endpoints. One of which is a big, you know, cloud server. Uh, one is uh, sort of a, a traditional mobile kind of device. But the third is actually a device that a, a patient ingests that will be inside of them for some period of time, which has a tiny computer processor on it and sends data wirelessly you know, through the patient's body. So it's, it's not entirely clear what subset of those components need to be secured. Like, do you really need to secure some computerized pill that a patient swallows? And I, I don't know. That's kind of up to the device vendor and, and to the FDA. But we've written our code in such a way that we can you know, conceivably secure everything from a CT scanner down to an, you know, an ingestible microcontroller. Hey, MedTech Talk podcast listeners, little inside note for you. Last week, I uh, teased a podcast I was going to be working on talking about Cardiation, a new venture between UPMC, Philips, Affilion Capital, and the American Heart Association. We'll have that for you on the next MedTech Talk podcast. But I do hope you're enjoying this conversation with MedCrypt CEO Mike Kachevsky. How are you able to service such a variety of, of different devices that, that do such different things? And I'm, I'm, I'm not a soft, I'm software illiterate when it comes to that. So um, is it, it, it sounds though that this is a, a, a huge task with, with many different devices. If you're talking about devices that are implanted, devices that, that are in hospitals, how are you able to, to monitor all these, uh, these variable devices? Yes. Yeah, so, so the monitoring piece actually isn't, isn't the tricky piece, right? From a, from a network perspective, a, an insulin pump that sends data to a user's mobile phone from a networking perspective looks a lot like a CT scanner that's sending data over the hospital network from the monitoring perspective. So, so that's, that's actually not where the, um, sort of the obvious problem in, in covering a range of devices comes from. We were very concerned that, number one, the the kind of software you would need to write for a very small embedded system is just very different than what you would write for a full-blown server that's running a CT scanner. And that that's true, but we actually found that having two, we refer to it as two flavors of our software, one for embedded systems and one for bigger computers, works really well in providing this sort of the same features and functions to those two different categories of, of devices. But the other inter interesting thing that we've learned over the last year or so is that a lot of these medical device vendors are, are using almost exactly the same underlying technologies. We, we sort of thought we would find, let's say, six or seven main categories of technologies that device vendors would be using. And it might be really labor intensive for us to address all six or seven of those categories. So we might need to focus on one or two. Well, it turns out that 95% of the device vendors we've talked to are using really one of two main architectures. And that, that two flavors of software we've written so far has covered 100% of the, the companies that we've talked to. Now, that's, that's not to say that there aren't devices out there that are using some either very new or very old technology that would make it hard to interface with, or that some devices maybe just are so low power that it doesn't uh, the the, the trade-offs you'd have to make to secure that data don't outweigh the clinical, you know, deleterious effects or whatever. Uh, so, so that's not to say that those things aren't true, but really we found that medical devices are a lot more similar to each other than we, than we had thought. Interesting. So 
Have you had a situation where a patch or a fix has been necessary? And, and what kind of uh, burden does that put on providers and, and patients and, and anyone who would be in contact with that device? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the the when a, a vulnerability is found in a medical device, it, it can be really labor intensive and costly to address these vulnerabilities. And there's some, some high profile cases of this that I think are, are worth us talking about. Um, the, the first and most high profile is the case of um, St. Jude with a pacemaker that they had that had a connectivity feature where a group of researchers found what they believed were some vulnerabilities in this particular device. And after a somewhat protracted interaction between the researchers, the med device company, and the FDA, uh, the, the, the medical device vendor, now, now Abbott, ha- has been uh, forced to issue a recall for 450,000 of those pacemakers, uh, which are implanted in patients' chests, for a firmware update. So, the, you know, ideally, these, these patients would need to go into a clinical setting, talk to their cardiologist, see if the firmware update made sense, and then from my understanding, if it does make sense, they need to lay down on a table and they, you know, the, the physician uses a, um, excuse me, an interrogator, is a you know, tiny computer to update the, the firmware of that pacemaker through the patient's skin. And I'm not, not a cardiology expert and not a, a you know, a, a pacing expert by, by any means. But what I have read is that the, the scary part about this is anytime you change anything about the way a pacemaker is, is functioning, there's some very tiny minuscule chance that something will go wrong and it'll affect the pacemaker and the pacemaker may stop working correctly. And I imagine there are some patients for whom that would be a very bad thing if that, if that happened. So a lot of cardiologists have pushed back and said, you know, they don't think that the clinical risks of this firmware update outweigh the, the cybersecurity risks. And it's sort of a, a developing story in the industry figuring out you know, how bad does a vulnerability need to be for us to say, yeah, we're going to put patients on the table. We're going to update the firmware of their pacemaker. There, the answer to that hasn't, it hasn't been concluded yet, right? They're, they're, we're still sort of going, going through this event. So that's, that's just what happens from the, the patient's perspective and from the clinician's perspective. From a medical device vendor's perspective, when a vulnerability is found, um, even if they have, you know, perfect cybersecurity processes in place internally, there's a lot of engineering work that needs to be done to address the vulnerability and then the testing process to test that software before it is released to the public in a sort of FDA compliant product cycle, life cycle management uh, system can be incredibly time, consume, time consuming and costly. In fact, we had one medical device vendor tell us that to put out any sort of software update for their devices costs minimally a million dollars. So if you make a change one line of code, rebuild the code, test it, release it, it's a million bucks. So I can't imagine how expensive, you know, a really detailed firmware update for a class three implantable devices. It's got to be, you know, incredibly costly for the user. So one of the things that we've attempted to do with our software, since we are our founders, we're sort of medical device people first, we have taken those testing considerations into mind when building our software so that when we release software updates, we release them very, very quickly, but also in a way that uh, gives our users access to testing documentation that we think will make it faster and easier for them to patch these sorts of these sorts of vulnerabilities. Well, will those, um, so will those patients still need to come in? Is it is, or are you able to fix it on the back end, or does it depend? 
Yeah, it depends on on where the vulnerability is found. But sure. in in the example that we were talking about, you know, we weren't involved with the the that particular medical right. device. But right. if a product like ours was involved, if you're going to update the firmware on the pacemaker, the the, the patient still needs to come in, right? There there might be some component of that system that can be updated over the air. So for example, if there's a, a bedside base station that communicates with the medical device, it's conceivable that you could you could patch that firmware just over the air from uh, you know from a, a web-based software update. But anything implanted like that, you're you know the patient's going to presumably need to, to go into a clinical setting. One other sort of in- interesting thing that we found here that's related to your question, you know, have we seen a vulnerability and what's it like when, when a, a patch needs to occur? We we follow this database very closely uh, that is managed by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, it's called ICS CERT. It stands for uh, Industrial Control Systems Computer Emergency Response Threat or something, uh, where vendors of uh, critical infrastructure equipment, when they find cybersecurity vulnerabilities, report them to this database so that their customers and you know other people in the in the industry can can know about the vulnerabilities and avoid falling prey to the same vulnerabilities. And medical devices are now considered a subset of this. So if you look, you'll see, I think there have been something like 18 or 19 vulnerability advisories so far in 2018 about medical devices in this database. So we're in the process of doing an analysis of all of those vulnerability reports, writing a white paper on it to look for sort of trends and interesting things. One of the things that we have seen is a disconnect between vulnerabilities that are found in core underlying software that pretty much every bit of software anybody publishes now uses, uh, a disconnect between vulnerabilities found in those things and the medical device vulnerability reports themselves. For example, uh, Microsoft finds vulnerabilities in their Windows operating systems all the time. If you have a medical device that's running one of those versions of Windows and a vulnerability comes out, should the medical device vendor report to the community that their device runs this version of Windows and therefore has this vulnerability? We haven't seen a lot of examples of that yet. So I don't know what the what our industry will decide is the right answer to the question. So either, you know, you can look at that 18 vulnerabilities so far, uh, 18 disclosures in, in 2018 uh, as being a, a big number. Like, wow, that could, that could affect, you know, a lot of patients if they're 18 very popular medical devices. Or you could look at it as the tip of the iceberg. If we get to the point where, a Windows vulnerability triggers an advisory in all of the medical devices that use that version of Windows, and we're going to be seeing, you know, hundreds of these advisories a year, if not if not thousands. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out long term. And who do you think is going to be driving this change? Is it the? I mean, the, the device industry certainly knows it has its responsibilities and, and is also intimately aware with the complications that come with um, with uh, complying with with these new regulations. But what about the physicians and what about the patients? And I'm also curious about the, the payers. I mean, the payers must really be interested in ensuring that the devices they're paying for uh, are going to work for the, the long run. How are these constituencies looking at this problem? Um, great, great question. So starting with the payers, I, I haven't heard a whole lot from payers on medical device cybersecurity. Obviously, the, the security of the payment systems and electronic medical records that they interface with, that's of great concern to them. Excuse me, but the, the the security of the devices themselves, I haven't heard a whole lot from payers. Hospitals are very concerned about the security of these devices because they ultimately are responsible for the you know the physical safety of the patients, but also the the integrity of their hospital network. And a 
a poorly designed medical device with, well, it doesn't mean to be poorly designed, a medical device with vulnerabilities in it running on the hospital network introduces some sort of risk into the hospital. So hospitals are really concerned about this problem now and have been spending a lot of time talking about it, a lot of money investing in solutions that, um, that aim to secure vulnerable devices on their network. Medical device vendors, as I mentioned earlier, have, have started to come around where a lot of them really see this or starting to see it as a business enabler. Like, hey, if we do this right, we can win for a variety of reasons. But I really see the main driver here being the FDA specifically. And as a, as a free market person who likes to believe that you know, free markets operate uh, with, uh, most efficiently when, when regulators are not intervening, this really has been a, a, a life lesson for me watching this thing play out because before the FDA put out these guidelines, the, the free market was, wasn't providing incentives for medical device vendors to build devices that were secure by, by design. And that's, that's unfortunate because I think, I think it's worked in other industries. Um, but, and, and I'll give you an example of that in a second, but it hasn't appeared to work in, in the medical device space. So I, I think that the FDA will continue to be the main driving force encouraging medical device vendors to build devices that are secure by design and secure the devices, you know, long-term keeping, keeping patients safe. I, I think there's a, an interesting analog to, uh, to, to the medical device space that I would encourage your, your listeners to think about. So the, the Apple iPhone is really a, an amazing piece of, of engineering and has one of the world's most advanced hardware-based security systems in it, so advanced that the, you know, the FBI claimed to not be able to, to decrypt the data on, was it the San Bernardino um, mass shooter's uh, iPhone and was, was imploring Apple to help them crack this device, which is a really an interesting story in and of itself. But I guess the question is, like, why did Apple invest presumably a lot of money building devices that were so secure? I don't remember, you know, the... Uh, the FCC or whoever's in charge of cell phones uh, coming up with regulations forcing cell phone providers to do that. They, I, I don't, I don't remember that. W what it seems happened was that Apple saw that in order to maintain the trust of their customers, they needed to be building devices that were, you know, secure and not being hacked every second. And by building devices that were secure, it allowed them to offer ancillary products that maybe wouldn't have been possible otherwise. For example, Apple Pay, you can pay for your groceries at Whole Foods with your, your iPhone. Uh, imagine if Apple said, you know, that Apple Pay transaction is secure so long as the Whole Foods Wi-Fi network is secure. But if the Wi-Fi network's breached, well then that's your own problem. Nobody would use Apple Pay. They, they didn't do that. They built a device that was secure from the start. And we really think that's where the medical device market needs to move. These devices need to be designed with security in mind so that hospitals don't need to worry about this. But unfortunately, I think the, the driving force there is, is probably going to be the FDA. Interesting point. And just, uh, just final question. I just want to know some nuts and bolts, uh, question, answers about your company. I mean, you raised some financing recently. What, uh, how much did you raise and what's your, uh, what's your growth look like in the future? Yeah, so we're, we're a, a pretty traditional venture capital-backed technology startup in terms of our, our fundraising model. So we raised a, a million dollars in what is now called a pre-seed round in 2016, about half from angel investors and half from two venture capital firms. Uh, we closed uh, just under $2 million in a seed uh, round led by a, a, another venture capital firm here last May. Um, and that's really helping us get our existing products scaled and deployed clinically in, in a larger number of, of customers' devices. 
and presumably there there will be um, other opportunities for for fundraising in the future following sort of that that traditional model. Um, the, the one of the things that interests me about this opportunity as an entrepreneur uh, is that I don't think it's a, tr- a tremendously capital intensive uh, business to build. So if you're, if you're actually building a new medical device, you you may need to raise you know tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to make this happen. For, for the sorts of cybersecurity technologies that we're that we're helping with here, this isn't you know we we shouldn't need to raise a hundred million dollars to make this you know really impactful. I mean that's that's pretty appealing to me. Nope, yes, it should be. And you're right; it's it's uh, it's not uh, a number you'll see in the medical device uh, industry. They they usually require much much more. Well, great. Well, thanks for uh, shining some light on this issue and for joining us today on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll wrap that up right there. Thanks so much for joining us. Please do tell your friends about the podcast. Subscribe if you would. And of course, reach out to me. I am at MedTechTom on Twitter, or you can email me directly, Tom at HealthAG.com. That's the word health followed by the letters egy.com. For those who do not know, Healthogy is the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and many, many fine events, including your MedTech conference, which is happening on May 30th next year in Minneapolis. We also have events in ophthalmology, respiratory, aesthetics, digital health. Go to healthogy.com. Check out what's happening. And tune in next week for another great tale of innovation on the MedTech Talk podcast.